Hey, we're in our trade series. We're, like I mentioned, we're trading in the me-centered approach to life and, and pursuing the life that Christ has called us to. And I want to talk to you this morning about, about consumerism. I have a friend of mine who, when he's watching a TV show with his kids, when the TV show breaks and it, go, and it breaks to commercials, uh, he encourages his kids to stay tuned in. To listen very carefully uh, to the commercials that are that are on the on the television show, not not because he necessarily wants his kids to get uh, this this craving to purchase or to have or to uh, to have some new experience. Uh, no, the the purpose in in him watch making his kids watch these commercials is because he's trained them to expose the lie in the commercial. The deception, the the false promise that is associated with uh, the, the the marketing that they're experiencing, and so when a commercial ends and and quickly as a new one begins, the kids are shouting out the lie that they see in the commercial. And you you've seen these as well. There's these messages, these sort of subtle messages, or maybe not so subtle messages that are attached to, to attached to commercials. You know, for example, why would Nike? enlist Michael Jordan to attach his name to a pair of tennis shoes? Well, the reason is, is because if you like to play basketball and you admire Michael Jordan as he plays basketball, the, the, the draw would be that, or the message might be, if I wear the same shoes Michael Jordan wears, then I'll play better basketball, maybe even play like Mike. Now, you wouldn't say that you, now that's, I know that's not going to be true, but, but that's why Nike wants Michael Jordan's name on shoes, because that'll draw you into believing that you can play like Mike. It's why that same company has got a name like Tiger Woods associated to golf clubs and golf balls. Because if you have Tiger Woods golf clubs, if you hit the same ball that he does, you'll play golf like him. Now, let me just tell you from personal experience, it doesn't work. All right? It's... It's, it's not the truth. It's, it's, it's a lie. You and I are inundated with all these false messages day in, day out. But over time, they, 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 these messages, they, they begin to seduce us, be, begin to, to make us believe things that are not true. Now, I know you have this skill as well. I know that you can pick out the lie. So what I've done is chosen a commercial I want you to watch. It's very subtle. I want, you, I want to see if you can see the lie, see if you can detect the, the, the false promise here. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using ladies' scented body wash and switched to Old Spice, he could smell like he's me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell of. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamond. Anything is possible when your man smells like Old Spice and not a lady. I'm on a horse. Okay, maybe it's not so subtle. <laughs> Anything's possible if you use Old Spice. I mean, it, that, it's, that's hyperbolic, right? So, you know, the two tickets to the thing you always wanted to be at, the diamonds, and, you know, the guy on a horse, so on and so forth. But, but those messages are coming at us on day in and day out. Sending the, sending the message, if you just had this, you'd be fulfilled. If you just possessed this, then you'd be happy. Here's what I want you to understand today. I want you to understand that the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ 
is, is not some new uh, re- redefinition of, of what marriage should look like in our current culture. The greatest danger threatening the church isn't a, a redefinition of sexuality. In fact, the greatest danger facing the church isn't even the, the legalization of, of, of certain narcotics or drugs or like you know, marijuana or something like that. The greatest danger facing the church is not our particular stand on abortion. As important as all those things are, don't hear me minimizing those things, but as important as those things are, they are not as dangerous as the greatest peril that we're facing today. In fact, I would say this has slipped very easily into the life of of a church. I'm not talking about this church. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about other people. But it's just, it's insidiously worked its way in. And I want to suggest to you that the greatest danger facing the church in America today is consumerism. Is this idea, if I just had this, I'd be happy. And the reason is, I want to expose this reason is so dangerous for us, especially in light of what we've been talking about. Remember, God made you on purpose and for a purpose. We looked at Psalm 139. We looked at Jeremiah chapter 1, Acts chapter 17. You, before you were conceived by your mother and father, you were conceived in the mind of God. You have purpose. Just like Jesus came with the mission. He came with a mission to seek and save the lost. And, and Satan came to derail him from that mission. Early on in, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's faced with temptations. We talked about those temptations. Appetites and allegiance and ambition. He does the same with us because nothing scares Satan, nothing frightens hell more than people coming alive in Christ and living the life that Christ has called them to because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what he wants to do is distract us and keep us from living out that call. And one of his strategies is this whole idea of consumerism. I want to give us, in the, in the time that we have this morning, just three lies and the truth, and then give us an alternative to, to living out this life of consumption and consuming. I, I, I want to expose the lies, and, and honestly, you, you'll, you'll know some of the lies, I want to give you the truth, but then I want to, I want to talk about what's the practical way that I can ex- extract myself from this riptide current of me, 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 more, more, more. How do I pull myself out of that and live a counter-cultural life, trade that all in, and embrace a way of living that pleases God and allows me to live out the purposes he created me for? So let's just dive right in and start with line, line number one. Uh, Line number one is this, I achieve meaning and status by purchasing and owning things. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. I want to read six verses from Genesis chapter 3. It's on page 6 in your pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to to use that Bible. We we look at this and we know that we can't, you know, we would would acknowledge that that meaning and status doesn't come from things. Yet we're, we're attracted to to shirts with a certain logo or with, you know, shoes with a certain brand name, uh, a handbag that's made by a certain company because there's, there's some sense of, of, uh, of, of status or meaning that comes with those things. It's subtle, yet and we would say it's not true, but we're, we're easily sucked into it. And this lie of achieving meaning and status by purchasing and owning things is not a new lie. In fact, it, it's it's... It's existed from the beginning. 
Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Right from the very beginning, the serpent, the adversary of our souls, saying to Eve, saying to us, if you just had this, then you'd be fulfilled. The serpent saying to Eve, you know, you've got, you got all this access to fruit and trees and garden and all that, but there's this one tree in the middle. Man, if you just had that, Eve, then, man, your eyes would be open. God doesn't want you to have it because he knows as soon as you have some of that, you're going to be like him. Your eyes are going to be open. There's wisdom attached to that. And if you just had that, then you'd be fulfilled. Sound familiar? You are bombarded with this message day in, day out. This is the message that has been bombarded at you and I since the garden. And it is a lie. It devastated Adam and Eve's lives, and it continues to devastate lives. It, it, it's this lie. If you, just, if you had more, you'd be happy. You'd be, you'd be satisfied. I mean, think about a guy named Solomon Solomon, David's son, David is a king in Israel, and, and his son Solomon would become king in Israel. Incredibly wise, immensely wealthy, tons of possessions. First Kings chapter 11 tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It's, it's like he got to wife number 500 and said, you know, if I just had 501 wives, then I'd be happy. He's just... More, more, more. Let me just read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 2 some verses written by Solomon that on the back end of his life of acquiring and accumulating of what his perception is on life. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look, let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also, tried finding, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. 
I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. He'd had it all. Every desire met, still unsatisfied. Maybe you're here, you're just kind of checking God out. You didn't even believe the Bible's true. You're not even sure Solomon existed. Let's try George Harrison from the Beatles. When you've had all the experiences, met all the famous people, made some money, toured the world, and got all the acclaim, you still think, is that it? Some people might be satisfied with that, but I wasn't, and I'm still not. Back to the lie. I achieved meaning and status by purchasing and owning things. Here's the truth. Let's throw that, that truth slap there. That'd be great. There we go. Searching for the truth. Meaning in life is never a result of your possessions. Meaning in life will never come by that next thing. See, check your motives on this. When you're making a, a purchase... And by the way, we, we all consume, and we, we, we have to eat, we have to clothe, we, we need shelter. But that next purchase you're making, what's your motive? Is it, so I'll look important, so people will see me and see that I fit in? And What's the motive? Because if it's significance and meaning in life, it won't deliver. Because the moment you get it, the next message will be, well, if you just had this. It's not the truth. And this lie actually leads us to the second lie. Because the second lie is this. I should feel guilty if I have nice things. I mean, if having stuff is bad, if, if really it's not having stuff, it's when stuff have, has you, if that's dangerous and that's bad, then maybe, maybe the, the way we should live is we should just get rid of everything. By the way, this is a reaction in our current culture. This is a, a, a response to, well, if stuff is bad, if, if consumption is harmful and meaning can't be found there, maybe meaning can be found in not having stuff. It's, it's a move to asceticism or this minimalism that, that if I just get rid of stuff, then I'll, then I'll have status and then I'll have meaning because, because I, I, don't, I don't have stuff. I'm not owned by anything. There, there's the first church I pastored was a young kid who went on a mission trip to Africa. He went there, saw immense poverty. It was very real, very tangible. Came back to the U.S. and as he came to church that first week, and he was wearing like this burlap kind of garment that just was just hung on him. Um, and I, you know, I noticed it. And uh, the, the next week he wore the same thing. And I saw him around town one time when I was driving. And he came the third week in the church wearing the same burlap outfit. And I, I uh, said to him, "Dude, what, what's with the potato sack? How come you're wearing this this thing everywhere you go?" He's like, "Well, 
I left America, this place of abundance, and I went to Africa and saw, saw poverty, and I was just, I was so overwhelmed with poverty, and I was so kind of disgusted with, with the abundance in America, and I told myself that, that I, didn't want, I didn't want to be owned by, by this consumerism, so what I've done is I, I want to live like Jesus, and I, 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 I want to I just have nothing. Now, the desire of his heart was good at the root of it because he didn't want to be owned by stuff. But what the, the, the deception was that he was embracing was having stuff bad. So having nothing good. Uh, that if this minimalistic approach to life, that if I can get rid of stuff, then I'll have meaning and I'll find significance in life. And that's not true either. The reality is that each one of us in the room, our checking account balances are all very different. God has measured out his resources, his gifts to us in, in different ways. And you should not feel guilty for God's blessing uh, of, of taking care of you. The, the, the thing you need to be watching out for is greed. That blind spot called greed. You need to watch out to make sure that you're not looking for significance and meaning in stuff. Make sure stuff doesn't have you. And Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 tell us that God blessed Abraham. Not so that Abraham could could build up his checking account. That God blessed Abraham so that he could be a blessing. Abraham, I want you to leave your land. I'm going to take you to a new land. I'm going to bless you and through you the nations will be blessed prophesying about Christ, but also he materially blessed Abraham, and Abraham did bless those he was surrounded by. Don't feel guilty if you have nice things. Just understand that you have been blessed to be a blessing. And this can be a, a reaction. You'll see it in, in, in Christian books of consumerism. We would all go, yeah, that, that's very dangerous to the church. But the reaction to consumerism, a pursuit of asceticism or this, this idea of a minimalizing and not, not having anything isn't going to deliver meaning to you either. That will not give you life. The truth is you have been blessed to be a blessing. And when you start to see the ways that God's blessed you as a way to bless others, well, then, then you come to understand the significance that can be found in being generous. Lie number three. God should be meeting my needs. I mean, the Bible does say that, that through Jesus, every need is met. I mean, the Bible, the psalmist does say that he will give me the desires of my heart. So, shouldn't God be meeting my needs? Well, here's the danger here on this one. When you and I are living out life in a consumer-driven, market-driven society and culture, and when you're hearing all these messages, the, the, the... The strategy of the evil one is for you to get into a relationship with God for purely selfish reasons, because your life will be better with God. You know, if you give your life to Jesus and you walk with him, your life will just be smoother. You'll have joy. You'll have peace. And and there's almost this this false promise made that, you know what, you're not going to... You're not going to have any trouble. And a lot of people have embraced this idea 
and have reduced God from being the majestic one who is, the, is, the, is on the throne and the angels are crying out, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. God, you're cut above everything else. And they're worshiping him all the time. We reduce this living created one to a product. What happens when you buy something from the store and it no longer works for you anymore? You return it. If you buy a blender, it doesn't quite blend like you hoped, and you paid some good money for it, and you don't like it, you, you, you take it back, right? You dispose of it. You get your money back because it didn't live out the guarantee. What happens when you begin a relationship with God, you begin a journey, a spiritual journey, and God is not the destination? What happens is that when God stops working for you, you put him on the shelf and you return him. Because, well, you know, there was this time in my life where, you know, God really worked for me, but then I, then I, I hit this whole season and just, it was good for that season, but, you know, now I've learned that I don't need that part of my life. Or maybe you're here today and you, you, you came to this crossroads of pain and disappointment. Significant. You buried a child. Your husband divorced you. Unemployed. Dangerous diagnosis. Real traumatic pain and disappointment. And you ask the question, I can't think of any good reason of why God would allow that. Hear me very carefully. I do not want to minimize your pain because it's real. I, I don't want to be insensitive to the trauma you experienced because it's real. But you need to understand this. The question, I can't think of any, is there any good reason why God would allow that? The, the question betrays our motive because the reality is we need to ask a follow-up question. Do you think that there might be a good reason that you don't know that God does? Well, yeah, that, there's that possibility. Doesn't mean your pain is anything less. It just means you don't know the reason. But the question betrays a subtle motive that I, God shouldn't treat me this way. He should be meeting my needs. You need to understand this. Some of the deepest and most significant spiritual formation that the Spirit of Christ will do in you will come through significant and profound disappointment. I don't even like saying it. But some of the deepest work, not all of it, but some of the deepest work of the Spirit in your life and in mine will come through significant and profound suffering and disappointment in life. Job was a great man because he came through all this suffering, he came through all this disappointment in life, as real as it was, just like your suffering is, as real as it was, even though those around him who loved him said, curse God and die. He came to the conclusion, though he slay me, I will trust him. He would not reduce God to a product. 
And the danger in our consumer-driven, market-driven culture is that we reduce God to a product, and when God stops working for me, we return him, we put him on the shelf. Three lies. I get meaning in life by acquiring stuff. Having stuff is bad. God should be meeting my needs. The truth is simply this. God is not a means to an end. He is God. And he is not there to just serve us. That's a distorted view of who God is. We exist to serve him. Now, an alternative. Consumerism, dangerous. But how do I extract myself? How do I pull, how do I swim out of this riptide current of consumerism? And what's an alternative? And I want to suggest to you that an alternative to consumption is contribution. An alternative to me, 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 more, 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 is seeing God has called me, God has gifted me, I have a contribution to make. It may not be the same as your contribution, but I, I can trade all that stuff in and I can contribute in a way that God has designed me. I want to give you a snapshot of that. I want to invite a friend to join me up here on the platform. Her name is Sandy. And Sandy... Uh, the reason I want you to hear her story is, uh, is, is simply because I, I think it's, it's, it's just, again, just a, a small picture of what this can look like. Now, Sandy, tell us about the ministry that you're involved in uh, and, and what you're giving your time to in these days. Okay. Um, what I am passionate about right now is Salem Free Clinics. I don't, um, I'm not medical. Um, my friend Diana Newport and I work in medical records, which means we support the rest of the clinic. We support the providers, the nurses, uh, the rest of the staff, and whatever they need. All right, and so you're contributing time to the clinic and medical records. Um, uh, and I, I want to say this very delicately because um, you're in a season of life that a lot of people call retirement. Um, and they would, uh, I didn't say old, you said old. Um, and, and this is the time, a lot of people, they want to kick your feet up and take it easy. I mean, they've been working hard and, 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 and you're over there serving the clinic. How, how many hours a week are you giving to the clinic? Answer the question. The answer I'm going to give is that I work full time at the clinic. Okay, so what she's telling you is that she uh, volunteers at Salem Free Clinic 40 to 60 hours a week. Um, now, she does not want to be the poster child, and, and season of life, that, that's not what you should be doing. But God's called you and gifted you to do that in this season, and it's, it's significant for you. Now, I know we could tell stories for quite some time about what God has done in the clinic. We've shared some of those up here, but tell me the story of what God has done in you. Well, so much. Um... I think the most important thing that he does at the clinic for me is that I am able to live out his love. Each patient that comes into the clinic, and these are all uninsured patients, they are um, feeling like no one cares, um, that there's no place to go. So they come into the clinic, and I've heard them say as they walk into the clinic, they could feel God's spirit. That's what we try to achieve. Hope and health for the community is the slogan we use. Hope that they'll find Christ, 
and they do because there's six roses on that piano today, but also health. And if I can be a small portion of that, that finding Christ, that's what I want to do. Awesome. Would you thank Sandy for her contribution and for your time? Can you see the difference in consumerism? So she could be kicking her heels up right now and just saying, hey, I've, I've done my time. And she's just, she continues to offer her life. And God's gifted you and created you. And you can do the same in whatever season of life you're, you're in. Uh, look at these two verses as we wrap up. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. The danger with consumerism is that we look to God, we look to others, and we say, you serve me. But Jesus Christ came. Jesus, the one whose life that we have in us, the life that we are called to live, he came not to be served, but to serve. And you and I are to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Consumerism is a dead-end road that robs you of the purpose that God created you for. But as we move from consumption, trade that in, and embrace, what, and ask, the, what, what's the contribution that God's calling me to? Because here's the reality. Not only do you have purpose, but God did not send his son into the world because he wanted something from you. He wanted something for you out of his great love. And when you encounter that great love, the last thing you can do is live a selfish life. You want to live the Christ life because that's what he's called us to.